Support for this podcast and the following message come from the United States Postal Service. Turn shipping to your advantage with USPS Ground Advantage Service. Learn how to gain a competitive edge at usps.com advantage. USPS Ground Advantage. Simple, affordable, reliable. We spend about a third of our lives sleeping, but for many, that full night of rest doesn't come easy, or at all. For this installment of our series, In Good Health, we're talking about sleep disorders and sleep hygiene. It's estimated that sleep disorders affect between 50 and 70 million people in America, including some of you. Here's Fred in Louisiana. I went through college uh, between 1987 and 91 with undiagnosed sleep apnea. My roommates told me afterward that they were aware that I would stop breathing in my sleep, but never mentioned anything to me. Unfortunately, I I fell asleep in in almost every class that I took. And a year after I graduated from college, before going to grad school, my sleep apnea was diagnosed, and I uh, have been on a CPAP machine ever since. Thanks for that message, Fred. How we sleep has a major impact on our health. It affects our immune system, hormones, and heart health. The American Academy of Sleep Medicine Foundation helps fund sleep research and clinics like ShiPAP in Chicago. But treatments for sleep issues are still costly. Getting a sleep study done in a lab can cost between $1,000 and $10,000. When we come back after this quick break, we'll discuss some of the most common sleep disorders, how we treat them, and get into some sleep hygiene. We'll even speak to a pulmonologist about what qualifies as a sleep disorder. I'm David Gura, in for Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We'll be back with more in just a moment. On this week's Wild Card, we talk with Issa Rae about those moments where our lives could have gone another direction. Definitely wasn't supposed to be with that guy at all. At all. But I still think about it. I'm Rachel Martin. Issa Rae tells us how to make peace with the path not taken. That's on the Wild Card podcast from NPR, the game where cards control the conversation. Let's get into the conversation. To kick things off for this episode of In Good Health, Jen was joined by Dr. Callie Cyrus. She's a psychiatrist and assistant professor at Johns Hopkins Medicine in Baltimore. But she didn't join the panel because of her resume, but because she has a sleep disorder and thought it would be a good subject for 1A to tackle. I'll hand it over to Jen. Dr. Cyrus, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me. Excited that you're covering this topic. Well, thanks for bringing it to us and to our attention. And I have to say, it's something a lot of us share on this team, a lack of sleep. But tell us about the sleep disorder you have. Yeah, so I was diagnosed with uh, narcolepsy, but hopefully later we'll be able to discuss how it's not that simple sometimes to be diagnosed. Um, after. But that's all happened when I was in my residency training, working with patients and falling asleep. And, you know, the patients weren't boring or anything. They were very interesting. I know that's probably the next question, but I just could not keep my eyes open and I knew it was coming. It's, it's really, it, you were looking at someone and you are prepared for your eyes to close and you just hope you're doing a good job of keeping a little bit open, um, but you're asleep. <laughs> when did you figure out this isn't normal exhaustion from just being in my residency? Something else is going on. Yeah, so it was actually my psychiatrist at the time. And so 
keep in mind, I'd gone through medical school where I couldn't go to class because I would fall asleep and have scribbles on my notebook. Um, and I slept probably close to 11 hours. But despite that, I would go to a coffee shop from seven to seven and take a nap at the desk after lunchtime. So I was, I was used to being someone who fell asleep. But then once I was officially a doctor and learning training to be a psychiatrist, and I was falling asleep, um, you know, in three-person meetings with my mentors. Um, I was falling asleep at required lectures. I would have to strategically find a seat by the wall so I could rest my head back. Or, you know, there are always those teachers who say, come sit at the table. So I would put my hand on my cheek and try to hide my facial expression or the fact that I was sleeping um, and find an angle where, you know, I couldn't be seen. And so my psychiatrist at the time said, you know what, I don't know what this is. We already know you have ADHD. Let's just go ahead and treat you. And then I think you should get a sleep study. Hmm. So you, you did the sleep study and you were diagnosed with narcolepsy. What did they tell you about your condition? Yeah. So the way I was diagnosed, and I, and I think Dr. Fiala will speak to this, is, is um, it's, it's a day study that they do. And I actually, they sent me home early because they had enough evidence. Um, and so, you know, I learned that I fell asleep between uh, one and two minutes, which is the sleep latency, how long it takes you to fall asleep. And um, at the end of the test, I walked out to the, the physician who was a more seasoned gentleman, was expert in the field. And he said, if I've ever seen narcolepsy, you definitely got it. Uh, he said the quickness with which you fell asleep was definitely part of it. And he asked if I had actually dreamt during these 20 minute naps that you're required to take. And I did, but those did not show up on the test. So while he told me this was narcolepsy on paper, I was actually labeled as idiopathic hypersomnia. And what's the difference between the two? Mm -hmm. So narcolepsy is generally you have um, cataplexy. So if you've ever seen Deuce Bigelow or you've heard these things on movies, it's not exactly like that. You, you know, you can, that's more severe, but there's also a type that um, is, is without cataplexy. And so you, that's the main hallmark, but you also are refreshed after you take 20 minute naps when you're sleepy. Idiopathic hypersomnia, you're just mostly sleepy all day and naps don't necessarily refresh your, your alertness. We're talking to Dr. Callie Cyrus, a psychiatrist and assistant professor at Johns Hopkins Medicine, who suggested the topic for today's show. And we want to hear from you. If you've been diagnosed with a sleep disorder, or maybe you just have trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep at night, we want to hear your story. Maybe you figured some workarounds to help you get the rest you need. Email us at 1A at WAMU.org or use our app 1A Vox Pop. Once you got that diagnosis, Dr. Cyrus, what were the next steps to help you treat it? Yeah. So um, first of all, it was so nice having a, having a reason to tell people I was falling asleep because everyone thinks you're just lazy. Right, right. <laughs> so the treatment really was structuring my schedule such that I could take a nap and be able to explain that. Um, and then also stimulants. And so that meant Adderall, Ritalin, Vyvanse, um, which I tried all of them. And again, I had also ADHD, so it was sort of a double, a double purpose. But um, that's pretty much what I tried. And at some point, you know, depending on where you're working, you know, at one point I was working on the Hill and you have to sit through long meetings. I was taking really high level stimulants and still falling asleep at a desk. So it depends on what the job actually is. Unless I'm go, 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 I'm not, a, it's really difficult to stay awake. So the treatment is behavioral with naps that are scheduled. I use a standing desk and have a virtual practice 
um, and medications, but you really kind of have to fine tune the routine for yourself. What did you learn about what was happening in your brain that caused this condition? Yeah, so this was always kind of the more difficult one to, to figure out what was going on with my, my brain. But I, what I believe is that I have a lower amount of a chemical called hypocretin, which is so far what they know about, about narcolepsy. But there's not much information about why you have a low amount. Maybe it's an autoimmune disease. Um, but I, I think for me, the, the, learning, the most important thing I learned was that I, I, when you fall asleep, I fall right into a dream cycle. So this is that cycle. Most people have a lot more um, restful, deep sleep. I'm dreaming. I'm dreaming so much all night and that breaks my sleep up during the night. I also finally had an explanation around. Um, so if you think about when you are dreaming, your body is, is um, paralyzed. So you're not necessarily acting out those dreams. So I'm, I, there are moments when I wake up and I cannot move. And this is terrifying, you know, when you're having hallucinations that someone's standing at your door and you can't move and you're trying to scream to your partner Hmm. and nothing's coming out. Um, And so these are all things that I later learned were part of the condition. How has this shaped your life and the way you move through the world? Yeah, it's, it's been quite difficult because I have to maintain a rigid schedule, which, you know, for my loved ones means that I'm home by nine and I try to be asleep by, by 10. Um, it also means that, let's say, if my clinical schedule is um, I start a little late at 10, I usually wake up and walk the dog around seven, but find that I might need a nap between 930 and 10 or 11 a.m. And then I usually take another after lunch. Um, it means that sometimes I have to be flaky and I might even ask my patients you know, I might need to, can you move back 15 minutes at the last minute? Or there's no way I'm going to be able to see you in an hour. I will not be fully conscious and you should not be paying for that hour. So I've definitely had to adjust my schedule to make sure that I get the sleep that I need because otherwise I'm just, I'm non-functional. Yeah. Both in your personal experience and your professional experience, what have you learned about the ways in which we value or devalue sleep. Yes. So first of all, I don't I don't I don't know that people really appreciate how blessed they are to have a normal ability to sleep um, until you realize you don't have it and how much that of that impacts you. Um, I've also learned that we we necess- we usually just think if you're not sleeping, you're not sleeping, you're not doing what you need to do, your sleep hygiene, something's up when there might be a lot more than that. I'm I'm so impressed by my psychiatrist who actually recommended a sleep study because, you know, in medical school, at least I was mostly taught it's sleep apnea that gets diagnosed. Narcolepsy is so rare. Um, and so that's something else that I've been able to um, highlight with my patients and really be able to think twice if this seems um, out of the ordinary. But I, I think that I also hope that, you know, daytime sleepiness doesn't get judged as much as it usually does, because you never know what's going on with someone in their in their nightlife or what their sleep life or what their energy level or other physical or mental health conditions are. So it's really helped me explain that to people and, and really support a culture of non-judgment around this. Well, how much does sleep come up for your patients? Constantly. Constantly. So even if someone, you know, checks in and says, oh, I'm doing great. I don't need an increase in my antidepressant. I still ask about their sleep. How much are they sleeping? Um, When do they go to sleep and wake up at a consistent hour? Has that changed with the medication? And for other people, you know, if they're having a really bad week, I might ask, 
how have you been sleeping? Has that contributed? And usually it does. Um, but again, if you're on stimulants, if you're on up starting a medication, it might make you sleepy. And a lot of people don't track their sleep. So it's it's just useful to be able to ask about how that's how that's going. And I often will tell them, especially if they're diagnosed with bipolar disorder, sleep is the we can fix anything or try to fix anything. Sleep is the first thing we need to address because you are not going to be able to function if you're not getting that sleep. That's Dr. Callie Cyrus, a psychiatrist and assistant professor at Johns Hopkins Medicine in Baltimore. She suggested the topic for today's show. Dr. Cyrus, thank you for sharing your story with us. We'll get more into sleep disorders and sleep hygiene after the break. We heard from Lois, who says, I was a horrible sleeper, particularly during menopause. After trying almost everything, including medication, exercise, and turning devices off at least an hour before bedtime, helped me. We'll be back with more in just a moment. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. When you keep your stress bottled up, it can eat away at you. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to make them better. Try BetterHelp Online Therapy, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp at betterhelp.com slash NPR today to get 10% off your first month. From your car radio to your smart speaker, NPR meets you where you are in a lot of different ways. Now we're in your pocket. Download the NPR app today. I'm Jesse Thorne. Why did Cola Scola write a bonkers, extremely fictionalized play about Mary Todd Lincoln? Well, you know, it was 2020 and we were all so isolated. I, I just started doing research. On, but the truth is, I, no, I just thought of it. We'll talk about that and more on Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. We're discussing sleep disorders today as a part of our series in good health. That's when we talk about the health issues that affect us most and put your questions to the experts. Here's what one of you had to share. About eight years ago, I was diagnosed with obstructive sleep apnea. I battled horrific morning headaches every day and other symptoms. For over 40 years, my various physicians would treat the symptoms but never look beyond my headaches to determine the cause. It finally took a dentist to recognize that I might have sleep apnea. I want to bring two new voices into the conversation. Julie Flygar is the president and CEO of Project Sleep. That's an organization that raises awareness about sleep health, sleep equity, and sleep disorders. She's also the author of Wide Awake and Dreaming, a memoir of narcolepsy. Julie, welcome to 1A. Thank you so much for having me. Also with us is Dr. Justin Fiala. He's an assistant professor of pulmonary critical care and sleep medicine at Northwestern Medicine in Chicago and the Shirley Ryan Ability Lab. Dr. Fiala, it's great to have you. Thank you so much for having me. So Dr. Fiala, why is sleep important? First, for our physical health. Yeah, so sleep uh, has a number of um, important uh, purposes. And, you know, primarily it is to refresh the body and um, uh not only repair systems that maybe have taken a hit throughout the day, um, what we see in the brain is that during um, certain phases of deep sleep, we're actually getting a physical clear out of uh, some of the toxins and metabolites that build up over the course of the day. Um, And then the other piece is kind of cognitive restoration. So emotional processing and uh, taking short-term memories and making them into long-term memories. And certainly I think uh, many people, you know, even people who have just had an, uh, uh, an occasional, uh, 
unrefreshing night of sleep can kind of attest to the fact that when sleep is disrupted, you know, you're not as sharp the next day. You may feel like everything is lagging. Um, and a lot of that speaks to the, the neurobiology um, and the importance of those different processes that are taking place. How I think a lot of us have these experiences where maybe there's a, a couple of nights when we just don't sleep well. But what's the difference between just, you know, being restless at night and actually having a sleep disorder? Excellent question. And I think this is actually um, quite nuanced in terms of an answer just because sleep as a field is very multidisciplinary. Um, it was something that historically was actually started by psychiatrists and then taken up by neurologists and pulmonologists kind of across the country. Um, and now we have practitioners who are uh, from various uh, kind of avenues of training, even outside of those uh, first fields. Um, so from that standpoint, you can have uh, breathing issues that uh, cause sleep problems. You can have kind of primary uh, primary neurologic issues. So um, issues with the central nervous system, peripheral nervous system, et cetera. And then there are psychiatric um, conditions that will affect sleep. So um, the definition will vary kind of depending on the flavor of sleep disorder. But on the whole, what we're generally looking for is something that um, is lasting for more than just a few days. So uh, for instance, narcolepsy, we're looking at symptoms that last over three months for things like chronic insomnia over three months. So that's a good rule of thumb to have in mind. Um, and then what you're really thinking about is um, how is the quality, the timing, um, the amount of sleep, um, and then what are the ramifications? Uh, are we having issues in terms of our daily functioning, our performance at our job and in our uh, daily interactions with people? And if any of those are impacted, there's a good chance that, that there very well might be a sleep disorder. Well, you mentioned narcolepsy and Dwayne emailed us his story. I was diagnosed with narcolepsy at age 20 after a history of falling asleep in meetings and in classes. I would look at the teacher looking at me, knowing my eyes were rolling back in my head. Now, Julie, you, you have narcolepsy as well. What misconceptions do people have about this disorder? Yeah, I think that often people think that you'll fall asleep when you're standing or in the middle of a conversation. Uh, in my experience, it was a lot more invisible than that. It wasn't so obvious. I was in law school uh, when I was uh, diagnosed, and I honestly just thought I was not meant for law school, like the work was too challenging or too dense. And the cases are pretty boring, to be honest, but um, it was something more than that. And I made excuses for years. I thought, I'm not a morning person. Oh, I'm not a night person. Oh, I really need my sleep. Oh, I haven't had enough caffeine. I've had too much caffeine. I came up with every excuse in the book. And it was actually only at the point where I was having trouble driving 15 minutes to school in the morning and not remembering parts of my drive to get to school. And that's when I got really scared and thought, I think there's something actually wrong here. Um, but I think it's really important for people to know that it, it's not always so obvious. My friends didn't really see it. I, was, I had my eyes open in class, but I wasn't really processing the information coming in. And so uh, it doesn't have to be this big, obvious falling asleep that everyone sees. It can be really quite hidden. Um, but if you're recognizing things like having trouble driving on a regular basis, even things like your mood, um, getting angry, angry really easily, those can be signs of sleep disorders. Hey, Dr. Fiala, why is it so difficult for us to identify these issues in ourselves? Is part of it just a, a basic misunderstanding around how important sleep is? Yeah, I think that's a big part of it, Jen. Um, I think the other piece is that, you know, um, for the longest time, we really did not 
uh, as a society really place a lot of value on sleep. Um, if you think back, you know, the, uh, the 90s in particular and, you know, maybe early aughts, you had people who were really championing, you know, just work, 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 and mm -hmm. I, I hardly ever sleep. And that was kind of something to be aspired to, you know, as a means for, you know, being the top dog, you know, succeeding, et cetera. Um, and I hope that we're, you know, shifting the conversation now to really appreciate you know, sacrificing sleep is is really um, something that has uh, really long lasting impacts. Um, for instance, well, we know uh, that sleep deprivation uh, can be considered a carcinogen. For instance, women who work overnight shifts um, have a higher risk of breast cancer, for instance, and they've actually shown similar trends with other types of cancer as well. So it just goes to show that this is something that really, because probably it's so ever present, right? We, we sleep every single 24 hour period, ideally, right? And um, so those those deficits will build up and potentially, you know, have very uh, serious complicate, serious implications down the line. Well, we're hearing from a lot of our listeners who are struggling with sleep apnea. Rose emailed us, I have severe sleep apnea, but I can't sleep with the sleep apnea machine. I've tried all the different attachments and everything kept me awake. What can I do? Dr. Fiala, let's just start with a, a, diag a definition of sleep apnea because there are different types. Absolutely. So sleep apnea is, um, in a very general sense, um, pauses in breathing overnight. You can have either obstructive sleep apnea, which is far and away the most common. Um, and then there is something called central sleep apnea that we'll just kind of, you know, put to the side for today's conversation, just because it is much, much rarer. Um, obstructive sleep apnea is something that is really uh, based on anatomy. You know, I think in the public, it unfortunately gets uh, described as something that only happens in the setting of obesity or overweight. Um, and it's not the case. That is definitely a piece of a lot of people's kind of uh, constellation of, of um, symptoms. But uh, on the whole, it's actually anything that crowds the back of the throat and crowds the passage through which we try to breathe. So sleep apnea is defined as um, having more than five episodes per hour um, of sleep wherein the breathing is either completely stopping or reducing to an extent where the uh, oxygen level in the blood drops significantly. And so if we see that a person is having over five events per hour, that makes the diagnosis of sleep apnea. And then we kind of grade it on severity. And depending on the severity, um, we kind of know that there are certain therapies, for instance, CPAP, like one of the um, uh, callers mentioned, uh, that is much more effective for more severe cases. Then there are other things like fancy mouth guards that kind of advance the jaw, move the bottom jaw forward a little bit to create more space in the back of the throat. That tends to be more um, effective when we're talking about mild or moderate sleep apnea. And as we heard from Rose, Rose is having trouble with a CPAP machine. The noise is keeping them awake. So is the jaw guard perhaps something to try? Yes, absolutely. So for instance, when I have patients who are dealing with CPAP intolerance, which is a very well-described phenomenon, that's often something that I reach for, especially if their severity is within the range where I think it'll actually be um, a particularly effective intervention. Um, even in cases where, say, they have severe sleep apnea, we've really given it a college try and, and um, haven't had a lot of success uh, with adapting to the therapy, um, sometimes that the oral appliance is still worth trying. Then there are other things. Uh, there's actually a new device called Inspire where they uh, insert a pacemaker, but not for the heart, actually for the muscle and the nerve uh, that leads to the tongue. Hmm. Um, and so the idea is that it kind of gives little jolts of electricity to move the tongue forward overnight so that it's, again, creating more space in the back of the throat to allow for breathing. 
Wow. Well, we got this message from Chris who says, I'm living with narcolepsy similar to Dr. Cyrus. I have some adaptations or hacks that help me. Working from home was a huge challenge. I got a standing desk, put the radio on in the background so it's not too silent, and schedule breaks to be spent walking outside in the sunlight. Julie, how have you learned to manage your narcolepsy? Yeah, I think uh, treatments were a big adjustment the first few years. I've been diagnosed for almost 16 years now, so it's been a long journey. Um, And there are a lot of different treatments and even new ones in development, which is really exciting. Um, And so that was a big piece of it for me. Uh, And I think also just meeting other people living with narcolepsy was really important. Um, I didn't think that that would be important necessarily, but once I did meet other people and realized like, oh my gosh, other people are dealing with the same stuff, I got so many different tips from people. And it was just really important for me to know I wasn't alone um, because it can be very socially isolating living with a sleep disorder because it's just really not on my face. People don't know it. um, And so um, that social support was absolutely essential for me. Um, and then, you know, daily adaptions to my lifestyle. Um, I live in Los Angeles, so um, driving across the city to a job was really difficult. I made those long commutes for a few years, and now I feel really happy to work at home and to be able to take a nap whenever I feel like it without having to worry about sneaking out to my car or where I'm going to nap. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's always a lifetime journey. Uh, it doesn't, uh, I like to say, narcolepsy doesn't get better. We just get better at it. Julie, how common is it for someone to have a sleep disorder but have it diagnosed as something else? Yeah, um, a lot of sleep disorders get misdiagnosed as other things um, or brushed aside. One of the things that we see with a lot of the uh, people with narcolepsy and different sleep disorders that um, we train to become storytellers is that a lot of them in high school ended up in truancy court Hmm. for absenteeism long before they ever got in front of a doctor. And I think how sad that our children and teens are making it in front of a judge for truancy years before anyone ever asks, maybe why aren't you making it into school? What is wrong with your sleep? Um, and I think this is really a systems-wide issue because uh, our, our educators aren't educated about sleep. Our doctors, our primary care doctors aren't educated about sleep very much at all. Sometimes it's just an hour of a med school curriculum dedicated to all of sleep disorders So, um, you know, these common, these are very common experiences that even once you recognize an issue uh, that you can be misdiagnosed with something else and um, eventually, hopefully get a diagnosis. But the majority of people living with sleep disorders are undiagnosed. Well, Dr. Fiala, it makes me think about the way we even structure education because we're hearing from a lot of adults, but for teens who need a lot of sleep, I, I remember in high school, my school day started... I think there were times when I had to be there around 7 a.m. for different activities or 8 a.m. My school day wouldn't end until late, and then I'd have to go home and do homework and all the other stuff. I, I was exhausted <laughs> consistently. I mean, where is the disconnect? Because we know we know young people need more sleep. They're still growing and, and developing, and yet we structure their lives in a way that doesn't actually support that. Yes, 100%. Um, and uh, to speak to some of the testimony that we've heard um, from uh, callers, I uh, have seen many patients with idiopathic hypersomnia and narcolepsy. Um, and what I'll tell you is that trying to get accommodations for uh, these students when they come to us and we get the diagnosis even can be very, very difficult. And I spend a lot of my you know clinical time uh, writing notes you know, of medical necessity saying, look, they, they really 
need uh, to have spaces built into their day for naps, right? Um, but that's what it takes. It really takes like direct intervention from a physician sometimes to make it happen for them, which again is just such an unfair burden to place on a patient, especially, you know, a, a minor um, who's, who's just struggling to, you know, get through uh, their education. Um, the, the other thing that I think is important to mention about uh, pediatrics with regard to sleep is sometimes we see um, almost a reverse of what we would expect with symptoms. So you would expect uh, it would manifest with, you know, excessive daytime sleepiness, which is by far what we see commonly in adults. But in children, we do see this paradoxical uh, response where sometimes it's actually hyperactivity um, and, and that's the manifestation. So again, you have to really have your feelers out and good pediatricians will pick up on this, you know, when we get referrals as a result. Um, but I, you know, I hope that, and again, thank you for having this topic today. Um, I hope that we're getting the message out that, uh, the face of sleep disorders can be very, um, varied. We got this email from Jordan who says, my husband very clearly has sleep apnea, but hasn't been able to secure a diagnosis to receive the proper care. His health insurance has repeatedly denied the required sleep study to get a CPAP machine. Very briefly, Dr. Fiala, just walk us through what a sleep study is, what it looks like, what you'd experience. Yeah. So uh, sleep studies can uh, take one of two main pathways. One is a home sleep study and the other one is an in-lab sleep study. The difficult part is that insurance in the United States is so complicated that it really depends on who the actual insurer is in terms of which they're going to prefer. You'd think that, you know, maybe some of the governmental programs would prefer to go with the cheaper home testing, but actually Medicaid, generally speaking, at least in Illinois, will typically want us to do an in-lab study. So um, it, there's no rhyme or reason. And so I think from uh, the standpoint of someone like the caller who's mentioning that they're getting a lot of pushback, um, sometimes it's just that we have to keep trying. So if they already submitted to get um, the in-lab sleep study, for instance, approved and it was denied, then they should try for a home sleep study and see if that goes through. Generally speaking, one of those pathways will be open with the right documentation and the right attestation for what their symptoms are. Um, once they do the sleep study, it's actually just one night at home. We have devices that are as simple as just putting on a wrist device, a little finger probe, and a little probe on the chest. And that could be it. Some have uh, nasal cannulas that you put on with a belt that goes around the chest and the abdomen. They kind of have different setups. Um, but generally speaking, it's fewer wires for the home study. If you're coming into the lab, expect to uh, kind of be wired up with lots of stickums on your head, on your chin, on your arms and legs, belt around the chest, belt around the abdomen, a finger probe. Um, it is a lot of data that we're getting. It's actually like a, a polygraph, you know, that people get when they're, you know, like on a talk show and, and you know, if they're lying or not and they're looking at you know, heart rate and breathing, we're looking at a lot of the same things. The most important thing that we're getting from an in-lab study is actually the brain waves, because that's the definitive way that we can say whether you're asleep or awake, and we can actually tell what phase of sleep you're in. Um, then we're getting breathing uh, data um, to let us know during each phase what's happening with uh, not only the oxygenation in the blood, but also the actual breathing muscles and the effort. Um, and then we're getting things about movement and snoring and um, other aspects that can uh, play a role in uh, sleep and its disruption. We're talking about sleep disorders and sleep hygiene as part of our series In Good Health. We'll be back with more after the break. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Teladoc Health. There are lots of reasons for wanting to be healthy. Family, work, living a fuller life. Teladoc Health understands. Whether you have diabetes, high blood pressure, or just need to manage your weight, Teladoc Health can help. Visit teledochealth.com slash what's your why for more information. That's T-E-L-A-D-O-C health slash what's your why. 
This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. This message comes from NPR sponsor Bluehost. Try Bluehost Cloud, the hosting plan made for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, fast load times, and 24-7 support, your sites can handle high traffic spikes. Visit Bluehost.com. Now let's get back to this month's edition of our series, In Good Health, when we put your health questions to the experts. Julie, if someone is struggling to get their insurance to pay for it, but they just, they're like, I've got to get this sleep study, how accessible and affordable are these things? Yeah, well, if you are thinking about sleep apnea, there are some at-home options now that are um, even affordable without insurance. Um, and I know um, I listened to a great episode of the Sleep Apnea Stories podcast uh, with a gentleman who was having a lot of challenge, and he got an at-home one for, I want to say, less than $100. Um, and it was absolutely life-changing. Uh, and they had a lot of great support built in to help him deal with his CPAP as well. Um, and so there are newer options because sort of the older way of doing things is not really uh, helping everyone as, as much as they need the help. Dr. Fiala, any guidance on where people can go if they just decide to go it alone and not deal with the insurance piece of it, if they have insurance? Yeah, it's a really tough question. So um, I actually work within the sleep equity space uh, within Chicago. Um, I founded a free sleep clinic that I uh, work with a community partner on the weekends uh, with. It's uh, the community partner's community health. Um, and then uh, our program is called ShyPAP. Um, it's a play on BiPAP, which is a type of machine that supports breathing overnight. Um, but uh, the idea is that, unfortunately, because everything is so insurance-based in terms of getting the testing um, reimbursed, and then not only if, you know, you can get the test, but then what are you going to do with the results, right? And so uh, the way that it works in the United States is once you get the diagnosis of sleep apnea, um, we then contact a third-party vendor that's then tasked with getting the patient a machine and supplies and then servicing the machine and getting refills. Unfortunately, without that insurance piece that's going to pay the third-party vendor, many patients are left high and dry without options. So the whole point of the, the free clinic was that we, we've uh, basically imagined ways to using refurbished testing devices um, to get testing done in-house. And then I interpret those studies and if patients need, sleep, uh, need CPAP, um, we actually solicit uh, donations of lightly used CPAP devices and then unused uh, mask, uh, masks, tubing, et cetera, all those uh, extra supplies. So I think the best uh, advice that I have for people is to get creative and start looking for, are there other organizations that, you know, have pathways like this? Because if you really lack insurance completely, it is a very difficult, um, it can be a very difficult barrier to overcome. So we've been talking about sleep disorders, but I also want to take some time to dig into the different ways we may be hurting our sleep routine. And and let's start with melatonin. A study published last month in the Journal of American Medicine showed that out of 25 melatonin gummy products sold in the U.S., 22 of them had different amounts of melatonin than what was listed on their labels. So one gummy had only 74% of the melatonin on the label, while another had more than three times the amount listed on its label. And we should say that in the U.S., melatonin is regulated as a dietary supplement, which is less strict than the regulation for over-the-counter drugs. In other countries, melatonin, you, you require a prescription to get it. But Dr. Fiala, if someone is using melatonin or wants to use it, 
how should they go about doing that? Yeah, so this is a great question because it seems like everybody is on melatonin these days, um, probably because it's ubiquitous at the, at the drugstores. Um, the most important thing to know about melatonin is you got to set expectation set. It is not going to work like Ambien or like a sleep aid that induces sleep. Melatonin is something that our bodies makes naturally. And what we're doing with a dose of melatonin timed correctly is kind of nudging the body to say, hey, you're actually a little bit further along than you think you are in the process of getting to sleep. So used properly, a low dose of melatonin will suffice. Anything from 0.5 to 1 milligrams is what we typically um, advise for our patients because higher dose is just going to leave you with grogginess and actually may induce uh, kind of more vivid dreams, maybe unpleasant for people. Um, so a dabble do you. And then the idea is you want consistency. Consistency is queen. So this is just for sleep hygiene in general. You want to be going to sleep at around the same time. And then with melatonin, the idea is it will ideally help you move your sleep schedule and in, in block kind of forward, meaning earlier. So the idea is that you want to take the melatonin um, anywhere from one to two hours before your desired bedtime. Um, that's a little bit earlier than maybe when you're currently getting to bed. And you take it at that same time each night until you're getting that advancement, that movement of your sleep schedule a little bit earlier. And is this a conversation you should have with your doctor before you start any yeah, sort of melatonin I, dosage? Yeah. Yeah. Ideally, I would absolutely recommend um, talking it over with your physician. On the whole, I think it is relatively lower risk compared to some other you know, uh, medications and supplements that you can get over the counter. But nevertheless, I think getting um, the advice and input of your physician or, or provider um, is worthwhile. Well, we're getting emails from folks sharing their sleep experiences. Joe says, I don't have trouble going to sleep, but if I wake up at about 3 a.m. to use the bathroom, I often have trouble getting back to sleep. What can be done about that? And Jay emailed us, once awakened, it's often a struggle for me to return to sleep. Using earplugs helps prevent disturbances and I sleep better. And Julie, for people who it's like, okay, I I can get there. I just, (laughs) I can't stay. I can't stay and sleep. Any, Any advice? Yeah, I think it's important to know a little bit about cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. Um, A lot of primary care doctors might just go right to uh, medications, um, but there's a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia techniques that can help people. um, And that's just actually shown, I think, to be one of, you know, uh, the most efficacious uh, treatments for insomnia issues. Um, yeah. And so when we talk about those cognitive behavioral changes, Dr. Fiala, what, what kinds of things are we putting into practice? Yeah. So uh, cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia is absolutely the cornerstone for therapy. Um, studies have shown that it is superior to medications used alone. And then if it's used in uh in association with medications, it's actually even more successful. And so we can use medications sometimes to bridge the gap, get people kind of take the edge off of starting what, uh, because it's sleep restriction, essentially, that's a big piece of cognitive behavioral therapy. And what we're aiming to do there is really um, maximize and leverage the body's natural drive to sleep. So the way that I think about sleep and the way that I pose it to uh, patients is if um, if you are trying to get to sleep and you can't, it's like hunger in that the further out you are from your last meal, the more hungry you're going to get. And so with sleep, the same thing is true. And so what we're doing is we're avoiding uh, any kind of sleep outside of what we're going to designate as our sleep window. And what we want patients to do is if they're saying that they're only sleeping, you know, four hours a night, we set a relatively narrow window at about four, four and a half hours. And what we say is you are not going to sleep outside of that 
Because what we want you to do is build up that drive to sleep so that essentially that sleep wave becomes so high that it's insurmountable. It'll carry them over that barrier into sleep. And then we have them continue that sleep restriction until they're reaching a point of high sleep efficiency, basically staying in bed and sleeping for 90% or more of that sleep window. And then, and only then, do we start expanding out the amount of time in that sleep window. So what we're talking about is really something that requires, you know, generally months to actually kind of see to fruition. And that's where a little bit of medication along, along with the cognitive behavioral therapy oftentimes is very helpful. The only thing I wanted to add as well is um, if someone is waking up with uh, urination at night and finding it hard to go to sleep afterwards, I would just uh, put, the, put the bug in people's ear that that could be sleep apnea. Sleep apnea is a high adrenaline state. And so it could be that during REM sleep, which is predominant in the second half of the night, that patients are trying to get into that REM sleep. They're blocking off their airway. Uh, that low oxygen uh, kind of triggers the body to give a surge of adrenaline. And the adrenaline is actually what will wake the person up, have that drive to urinate. And then it's like that activation. You're feeling like, uh, oh, I don't know what to do. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm uh, activated right now, right? I'm awake. And that's because of the adrenaline. So if that's the case, and if you have symptoms that kind of fit the bill, it might be worth talking to your provider to see if a sleep study might be warranted. We heard from Judith who emailed, I'm 83 years old and everyone I know in their 70s and 80s and beyond gets up two or three times a night to urinate. And just a a few sentences, Dr. Fiala, I mean, how does aging affect our sleep? Yeah. So with aging, what we see is that the um, amount of deep sleep really does decrease with age. Um, and the consolidation of sleep, meaning how well do you kind of get into deep sleep and stay there, it it also decreases over time. And so it'll become more fragmented and a little bit less uh, refreshing as a result. Um, and then there are, uh, there are these other things that with age, so if patients have chronic, you know, chronic issues like diabetes or heart failure, medica- you know, medical issues that require medications that maybe increase the propensity to have to urinate, um, things like pelvic floor dysfunction, if, you know, women in particular have had a lot of kids um, vaginally, that can then lead to issues where they're having to urinate more frequently. So it, it becomes more complex with age because there are, there are kind of more possibilities there. But nevertheless, I think if patients are having unrefreshing sleep, it's a reason to start the conversation because, you know, trying to find the linchpin could really improve quality of life. Julie, you moved to Washington, D.C. shortly after you finished law school and, and you started your advocacy with Project Sleep. Our listeners have so many questions about sleep and, and they're reporting so many experiences with poor sleep. What did you notice about the state of funding for research on sleep health? Yeah. um, Well, when I moved to Washington, one of the biggest things I noticed uh, just by showing up at any public meeting, you know, at NIH, FDA, anywhere they would let you in the door, um, I just started showing up. And I think what it made me realize is that if we don't bring our voices to the table, if we're not there in the room, other people are. They're sharing their stories about other problems um, and other conditions. And um, our voice is then silent if we're not there. Um, And so, you know, just really the power of just showing up um, was hugely impactful and um, for for raising awareness about um, sleep disorders is important, but also the funding for the research. Um, Sleep is a newer scientific area, you know, that they discovered REM sleep only 70 years ago is pretty amazing to think about. Um, And so we really want to make sure that the funding is increasing for sleep as, as we especially realize how 
integral it is for um, things like even Alzheimer's disease and cancer. There's just so many connections. So um, our advocacy is bringing patient advocates together with sleep researchers and sleep clinicians to Capitol Hill uh, to be talking to our legislatures about the importance of funding um, sleep research. Uh, at NIH. And we're really also hoping to focus more on the CDC as um, a public health uh, department to really increase the amount of funding that goes to sleep education and sleep awareness. We're getting so many comments and we won't be able to get to all of them. We got this email from Rebecca who says, I'm in perimenopause and struggle to get to sleep and stay asleep because of a decrease in progesterone. We are also hearing from a lot of people about magnesium. Rachel emailed, my son was always a horrible sleeper with night terrors and leg cramping at night. We finally figured out that he has a magnesium deficiency and taking a supplement has helped him so much. Hey, Dr. Fiala, we, we, it, it feels like people are sort of trying to put the pieces together. If you're having trouble sleeping at night, what are just some basic questions you should ask yourself so that you come to the right conclusion or seek the right kind of help? To, to get you through the night. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I always start with my patients asking about their sleep schedule. Um, because again, consistency is such a big piece of sleep in general. And we have to make sleep predictable for the brain in order for it to be kind of optimal. Um, so if I start with someone and they say, you know, I say, hey, when do you when do you lay down with the intention of going to sleep? And they're, you know, saying, oh, well, it's really variable. Some days it's 10, some days it's 1 a.m. Um, you know, then I'm saying, okay, so it might be more of an issue uh, with consistency. And at the very least, we kind of have to start there while we're exploring other avenues, um, because it, it, that is going to be a cornerstone for getting it uh, more correct. Then we go into a discussion of, are they waking up over the course of the night? And if so, why? You know, is it anxious thoughts? Is it, you know, having to go to urinate? Is it something else? Checking um, the phone, checking the screen. Exactly, mm -hmm. right? Um, and then we actually go into this whole discussion of uh, uh, daytime sleepiness and how likely they are to fall asleep during the day, because you kind of get a differentiation between pe people who have kind of chronic insomnia who tend to not be prone to fall asleep during the day, even though they feel very tired versus those uh, who are kind of the sleep apnea and narcolepsy side of things who are very prone to fall asleep. And then we're screening for things that, uh, you know, may have other phenomena associated with them. So those are things like the sleep paralysis, cataplexy, et cetera, that might give us a clue that there is something um, on that spectrum of, you know, narcolepsy, neurobiological uh, abnormalities uh, that we might have to look into. We've been talking to Dr. Justin Fiala. He's an assistant professor of pulmonary critical care and sleep medicine at Northwestern Medicine and the Shirley Ryan Ability Lab, both in Chicago. And Julie Flygar, the president and CEO of Project Sleep. That's an organization that raises awareness about sleep health, sleep equity, and sleep disorders. She's also the author of Wide Awake and Dreaming, a memoir of narcolepsy. Julie, Dr. Fiala, thank you so much. Today's producer was Jorgelina Manorea. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. And we'll talk more soon. This is 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor, HubSpot. Imagine growing a business with high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Lisa. 
Good sleep should come naturally. And with the new Natural Hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between Lisa and West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is expertly crafted from natural latex, natural wool, and certified safe foams to elevate your sleep sanctuary and support a greener tomorrow. Plus, every purchase helps fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Visit lisa.com to learn more. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com. Summer is for going to the movie theater because it's too hot to stay home. It's for driving with the windows down, listening to your favorite music. It's for stretching out while you're on vacation to gobble up a TV show. For a guide to some of the TV, movies, and music we are most excited about this summer, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. 